Good morning. I'm Dominique Ficklin, and this is my husband, Andrew. Um, we are going to introduce ourselves a bit and then read a woe to you. Um, so uh, my role here at the church is um, basically dealing with our compassion fund, and um, I head up a lot of our fundraisers um, and just try to interact more with the community here, especially um, on Franklin Street. Um, and have like a wonderful small group behind me that helps support me in a lot of the fundraisers that we do. Um, and I'll pass it off to Andrew. Hi there, so I'm Andrew. I'll also respond to Dominique's husband, especially around here. Um, I don't do all that much, but they let me hang out anyway. You may see me every now and then driving the bus, which, plug, we need more bus drivers. So if you've ever wanted to do that, we have a very rigorous training process where we throw you behind the wheel and see how things go. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of fun. I recommend it. Uh, it really is a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, so our reading today, let's see, start us off. It is Matthew 23, 16 through 22, right? Good. <laughs> so, woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And all God's people said, amen. yeah, that wasn't a very convincing amen. After that passage, you're like, uh, amen, question mark, I guess. What is he saying there? All right. Correct passage uh, that I'm going to want you to read. When you first read it, you're going to be like, uh, this cannot be right. Okay. But this is the passage that we are in today. Okay. Um, remember how I said in the first sermon of this series that uh, doing a, a series on the seven woes of Jesus might be the worst series idea ever? Now you know what I meant, all right? This is kind of a strange passage, right? It's a little bit confusing. It's hard for us to get our head around exactly what Jesus is saying. We could really connect with what he said before because he's talking about the Pharisees, the teachers of the law being these hypocrites who slam the door of the kingdom in the faces of people. And we're like, yeah, get them, Jesus. Go. All right. And then he says that they, they'll travel across land and sea to make a single convert. But when they do, they make that convert twice the child of hell that they are. And we're like, preach, Jesus. And then he starts talking about the temple and the gold. And we're like, um, all right, you lost me. OK, time to scroll a little bit and check out and come back in a minute. Uh, he does get back on track in a few. OK, in the next couple of verses, he's going to start calling people whitewashed tombs and murderers of the prophets. So that will get exciting again. But at this point, it's confusing. This passage from Jesus is confusing let's get ourselves oriented as we dig into this today and pull this apart and try to understand exactly what Jesus is saying to us not just to the people here but to us as well 
Regardless of what we might think on the surface, the radical Jesus, the rebel Jesus is going to cut through the surface of this passage and he's going to hit right at the root and he's going to strike us at our roots as well. Jesus, help us today. As we dive into this saying, this warning that you give. And it's so easy for us when we come across a passage in Scripture that we don't really understand, that doesn't seem to connect directly to our lives immediately. It's so easy for us to move on and assume that you're not talking to us. But the moment we assume you're not talking to us, we can pretty much guarantee that you are. And that's the way you work. And we pray that you would just cut through the surface of this. Take what feels kind of confusing at first and bring clarity. We pray that your word would be spoken today, that you would unleash the river of your spirit in this place. That you would move. That we would be moving with you that in our hearts in our souls in our minds that we'll be responding with you every step of the way that we'll be tuned in listening to what you're trying to say to us what you're trying to say through us make us responsive and ready to move wherever you turn us see your name we pray amen Amen. So a little bit of orientation again. So the seven woes of Jesus, these seven words of warning that he delivers to the religious leaders of his day. These are the experts of the law. They knew the law, the word of God inside and out. These are the people that you go to when you have any question about trying to understand the scripture. If you're struggling with something with that, these are the people who are the experts. You turn to them. Not only are they the experts in knowing the law, But they've set themselves up as the experts in obeying and practicing the law as well. They took great pride in this and they tried to push that same thing on other people as well. And Jesus says that you make it difficult. You're putting the burden on people. You're slamming the door of the kingdom in their faces. This is during this last week of Jesus's life when he is on his way towards the cross. And you can sense in this every word that Jesus has to say. There's an urgency in what he's saying here. There's an urgency. And so he's confronting them in this sin. And he confronts it head on. And just like we've said the last couple of weeks, he doesn't just tell it like it is, though. He also shows how it should be. And we see that in his life. He doesn't just tell it like it is. He shows how it should be. He doesn't just call out a warning But he carves out a way and he says, follow me in this walk in this way. So that's kind of the overall picture of what's happening in the greater passage. But what about this statement today? What in the world is Jesus getting at when he's talking about this? Is this like a guideline for how to make the proper oath? Like making sure you don't mess up on the oath? No, it's so much more than that. Again, he's going to strike at the root of it. As he unpacks it for us. So first of all, he begins with a statement. Woe to you, blind guides. 
Woe to you blind guys. Now, this is a switch from what he's been doing, okay? The two before this, he's followed a different pattern. And then after this one, he's going to go back into that pattern. But he breaks the pattern here. The normal formula is for him to say, Woe to you Pharisees, teachers of the law. And in this one, he switches it. And he says, Woe to you blind guides. Blind guides. What an image. Not just blind in and of yourself, but blind guides that you see yourself as a leader of people and you are leading them. You're leading them astray. You're leading them astray. I am probably uh, the worst person, you know, when it comes to a sense of the internal sense of direction. All right. Like if I'm driving somewhere and the GPS is not on, I am getting lost. I just am. All right. We'll go up and see Sarah's family in Ohio and then her family in Chicago. And I don't know how many times we've made that trip in the last 15 years of us being married. But every time somewhere along the way, I start daydreaming. All right. I'm like looking at the trees and the sky and stuff. I'm thinking about all kinds of things. And then next thing you know, I'm like, "Uh oh. And Sarah's like, were you looking at the trees again? Yes, I don't know where we are anymore. All right. So I am that person, all right, to lead astray. Have you ever been led astray by anyone? Think about that for a second. Have you ever been led astray? I remember when I was really young in ministry. I was like in my first couple of years of being in ministry. I was a youth pastor. And that's surprising, isn't it? And um, and so this guy who was in the church, he was a retired pastor. I really respected him a lot. He's a great guy. And he came to me and uh, he asked me to perform the wedding for his daughter. And I was really honored by that. I was like, this is amazing. And he's like, now, listen, I know you're like young in ministry. You're a young pastor. So I'm going to take care of all the pastoral duties for you. And all you have to do is show up and do the wedding. I'm like, all right, that sounds easy enough. Okay, he's like, I'll do all the premarital counseling, so all the tough questions. I got that handled. You just show up and read the words. I'm like, all right, here we go. So I show up on the day of the rehearsal, getting ready for uh, the wedding, and uh, he pulls me aside, and he's like, listen, there's something I should probably tell you before this wedding starts. Um, They actually have already gone to the judge like months ago. They're already married. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, nobody knows that but us. I'm like, this is not good, all right? The next thing, I'm like confused. I'm like, what should I do? And I'm thinking, okay, let's just go through this rehearsal and see what happens, all right? So I'm going through the rehearsal, and next comes the guy who's doing the music for the whole wedding. He's a family friend who also, his job, his profession, is to be an Elvis impersonator. So all of the music is Elvis, and he's in like full, full on. He's like, wise men say, all right? I'm like, get me out. Was that a good Elvis impersonation? How'd I do, Carolyn? Yeah? All right, thank you. <laughs> all right. And then I'm like, this could not get worse. And then I'm forced to read the vows. Like they wrote their own vows to each other. Okay. But I had to like read them and then they repeat after me. So for her vows, I'm like saying to this man, I'm, I'm like, uh, I, I will, uh, I commit that every day when you come home from a long day of work, I will massage the tension out of your shoulders. <laughs> and so I have to say that in front of people. All right. 
I was led astray. Anybody in here that I've done a wedding for? I've done your wedding. Raise your hand if that's true. Okay, several of you guys. Remember how I made you go through like 87 sessions of premarital counseling? (laughs) That's why, all right? Overcompensating there. Okay. (laughs) Have you ever been led astray? Like you're given some information and you find out, man, we're headed in the in the wrong direction with this. This is what Jesus is calling out. He's calling out these religious leaders like you see yourself as a leader. And the truth is you are, but you're leading your people astray. You're a blind guide. And with every step you take, you lead them further away and they're following you. They're following you. Blind guides. This, this theme of blindness is a frequent and repeated theme all the way throughout the Gospels. This theme of darkness and light, of, of blindness and sight, it repeats itself over and over again through the Gospels. The Gospels quote uh, the prophet Isaiah about the birth of Jesus, and they say this about the birth of Jesus, that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Exactly. And then the, the, uh, John says this, the Gospel of John says, the, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Jesus says about himself, I am the light of the world. This theme of light versus darkness, this, this theme of sight that heals blindness. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. He is the truth. Who came? He is the light who came to open our eyes to the truth. Sometimes seeing the light can be a painful experience. Anybody ever been like in a really deep sleep and then somebody comes in and flips the light switch on? And you're like, get behind me, Satan. All right. <laughs> That's the worst. And it takes you a while like for your eyes to adjust and like remember where you are and to get reoriented again. Right. And kind of to ease into that, sometimes you got the covers over your head because you don't want the light to get in. Sometimes it's painful and disorienting. And it takes time to adjust to the light. And this is what's happening in this moment as Jesus speaks in what seems like this painful, these harsh words. And they are harsh, but it's for the sake of shaking them awake. Open your eyes, you blind guides, and see the light that is standing right in front of you. He'll do the same thing to you. He will. He'll confront you. He will intervene in your life. He'll throw the light switch on, whether you're ready for it or not. And he'll illuminate the blind spots in your life. It's not a pleasant experience, but he confronts out of compassion. And that's exactly what he does here in this moment. And he will call you out on it. Let me ask you this question for you personally, individually today. What are the blind spots in your life that you sense Jesus calling out lately? What blind spots have you felt him illuminating and saying, this is an area in your life that you need to surrender to me? I've been slowly revealing this to you and now I'm showing you and I'm saying this is something that you need to surrender to me. What are the blind spots lately? Not just don't just pull out the old classics, all right? Real. 
What are the blind spots lately that he's been calling out? And if you can't think of any, then maybe the light has been thrown on, but you've still got your head under the covers. Open up your eyes. and Let him point it out to you. His confrontation out of compassion. The next thing that Jesus says is this. He goes on from this, this uh, imagery of blind guides, such a strong Image. He goes from this imagery of blind guides, he calls them blind fools, and he calls them blind men. And then he begins to talk about the temple, right? And he talks about the different kind of pieces of the temple, the, the altar of the temple, and the, the, the gift that is on the altar, and the gold versus the temple, all of these different things. And he begins to talk to us about the temple, but is this really about the temple? Is this really about the temple? What is it that Jesus is actually trying to say here? He's already disrupted their view of the temple in this same time frame. All right. In Matthew chapter 21, we get the beginning of the last week of Jesus's life, the triumphal entry as he comes into Jerusalem. And there's this welcoming parade. We're going to celebrate that on Palm Sunday in a few weeks. And they call him the king and they say, this is the king we've been waiting for, the son of David. He's here. God has come to save us. God has come to rescue us. And immediately after that, we see Jesus going from this moment of being exalted as the king, the long awaited Messiah, to he goes into the temple and he begins to exercise that authority of being the king. And of being God in the flesh. And it says that he comes in and he begins to clear out the temple. He's flipping tables. He fashions a whip and like chases the animals out of the temple. Why is he doing this? He's angry. Exactly. And what is he angry about? There are two things that make God angry all the way throughout scripture. Idolatry, which is twisted worship. And two, oppression. And both of these are happening in this moment. The religious elite have allowed this culture of twisted worship for the sake of oppressing the poor. So we got two in one happening here. Both of the things that make God angry all the way throughout Scripture are happening in this scene of Jesus cleansing the temple. Both of them are happening. How are the poor being oppressed by the money changers? Here's what's most likely happening. In order to, to come into the temple to... to to have your sacrifice brought to the temple, you obviously have to bring something to sacrifice. And it was required that you bring livestock or some, some kind of animal. And the people who had the animals in that day, who owned animals, who owned livestock, were the most wealthy people. The poor had to come to the temple and buy their sacrifice there at the temple before they went in and most likely what is happening here is that the the entrepreneurs among them have recognized a business opportunity and they said in order for them to get to God and make their sacrifice to God they've got to go through us we've got the corner on the market here and they jack up the prices on the sacrifices and so it twists the act of worship and at the same time oppresses the poor and Jesus is not having either one of those he will not have Either one of those. We've got to examine our lives. Are we participating in that in any way? Are we participating in that in any way? Jesus is always going to be on the side of the poor. And if you don't believe, then look, he proved it. He became poor himself. He will always be there 
and among the poor and on the side of the poor. And we better be too. So Jesus has already disrupted their view of the temple and exposed the brokenness of it as this system that was benefiting the religious elite. And he comes and and he attacks that. And in the midst of that, he's fulfilling Isaiah 61. He is good news to the poor. He is released to the oppressed. He's healing the sick, it says in Matthew 21. They're in the temple. He's, he's healing people. The children are gathering around him, and they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David. And it says the religious leaders are indignant. And they are angry and furious over this. And the false idols, that's right. That's right. They let that system become that for them. So Jesus here has already revealed the brokenness of the temple system and the way the religious leaders have twisted it. And he's also revealed to them that he, in fact, himself is the temple. He is the temple. What is the temple? It's the dwelling place of the living God. And that's exactly who Jesus is. Not in stone and mortar, but in flesh and blood. The living God setting up his dwelling among us through the person of Jesus. So what is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about the temple? No. Is he talking about oaths? No. Is he talking about the gold? No. Is he talking about altar and sacrifices? No. He's talking about something much more deep than that. He strikes at the root and here's what he's saying. He's saying this is about the fragmentation of the sacred. This is about the fragmentation of the sacred. You look at the temple and you say, if you swear by this piece of the temple, you're bound by it. But if you swear by this part of the temple, you're off the hook. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? What is it that makes the temple sacred? It's the presence of God himself. All of it is sacred or none of it is sacred. All of it is sacred or none of it is sacred. Jesus has come to reconcile all things to himself. And he calls out our fragmented lives. And he says, you cannot divide up your life between what is sacred and what is not. Either all of it is sacred or none of it is. The poet Wendell Berry put it this way. There's no such thing as the sacred and the secular. There's only the sacred and desecrated what was once sacred that we have now made not sacred jesus says i have come to bring all things together there is no dividing between the sacred and the secular either all of it sacred or none of it is and he will not deal with the fragmentation of it we've done the same thing we draw lines all over the place in order to make our lives seem easier. So we draw a line between the church and the culture. We draw lines between worship and our work. They're the same thing. They're the same thing. Our work is our worship. We draw lines between what is private and what is public. They're the same thing. What is happening in me internally has to well up and work itself out of me into the public. Or is it even there? There is no line between what is private and public. There's no line between calling and career. He says, stop fragmenting everything. Some things we think are about Jesus and some things are 
are about me. But Jesus says that's not true. Too often some parts of my life belong to Jesus and other parts I say these still belong to me. I'm holding on to this and Jesus says there's no such thing. There's no such thing. And the rebel Jesus breaks through those lines that we have carefully drawn. He disrupts all of it. And he says, I'm not living inside those lines that you've drawn for me. I want all of it. I'm here to reconcile all of it, to bring it all together and to bring it under my reign as the king over your life. That's what it means to live in the kingdom of God. It means to live under the reign of King Jesus. What is the kingdom? Wherever Jesus reigns as king. Those are the borders of the kingdom. Wherever Jesus reigns as king. He says you can't keep drawing the lines. And the rebel Jesus keeps breaking across those lines. Sometimes we think Jesus can use my money that I give to the church. But he probably doesn't want my skills and work experience that end up creating that money. No, he wants all of it. He wants all of it. And if you're out in the business world, he wants you. He wants your skills. He wants your expertise. And he wants you investing that, not just into the local church, obviously, yes, but even beyond that in the kingdom as a whole. We think Jesus can use my talent maybe up on the church stage, but he probably doesn't have much need for my talent or even have any kind of vision for how to use my talent anywhere else. No, he wants all of it. It all belongs to him. And he wants to expand your view of how you see the world and see how he wants to use what you have when you surrender it to him. Jesus can use me to invite people to church so that one of the pastors can stand up and talk to them about Christianity. And Jesus says, no, I want to use you out there in your office, in your classroom, in your dorm room, in your home, in the places where the people that you see as professional Christians are never going. He needs you there. He needs you there. You are an embassy of the kingdom. You are an embassy of the kingdom. When there's an embassy of a, of a certain country that's in a foreign country, then that embassy, like the ground that that embassy is on, is seen as the soil of the home country. Right? Same is true with the kingdom. Everywhere you go, it's the soil of the kingdom is there. Everywhere you go, the kingdom is rolling out beneath your feet. There is no dividing it up. We can't divide the sacred from the secular. If we do, we're creating a fragmented view of what is holy. And Jesus says either it's all holy or none of it is. What makes a temple holy? God is there. What made the ground holy? Holy where Moses had the interaction with God through the burning bush. bush. What made that ground holy? God was there. What made the mountain holy where Elijah has the experience with God on the mountain? What made the mountain holy? God was there. So here's my question. Where is God? Where is God today? Right now? That's right, Robert. Robert tapped his heart. It's exactly right. He's living within you. And he fills up every corner of his creation. There is no place you can go, the Psalms tell us, to escape his presence. He fills it all up. He fills it all up. He is everywhere. 
So he is making every place the opportunity to become a holy place. He rules it all. Here's the second question for you. What needs to be brought under God's reign in your life? The first question is about the blind spots that he's revealing to you. Then the second question is, what are the places that need to be reconciled and brought together? What are the fragments of your life that can't stay fragmented any longer that he's wanting to bring together? One of my great heroes, spiritual heroes, is a man named John Wesley. Amen. Some of y'all have heard me talk about Mr. Wesley before, all right? I love this guy. He lived in the 1700s in England. Uh, He went to school at Oxford, and uh, while he was in school there, he became friends with a a guy named George Whitfield. Anybody ever heard of George Whitfield? One of the great preachers who preached uh, one of the great awakenings and, and was a revivalist and uh, an evangelist who traveled across America and, and preached the great awakening here. Um, so he was friends with George Whitfield in college, in school, and John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley. And they were in this group together. It was a discipleship group, a band. All right, there we go. Talk to Steph and Joe if you want to be in a band. Um, not like this kind of band, all right? Like this kind of band. Okay, that's our new symbolism. Uh, so they were in this tight discipleship group with each other to hold each other accountable and just spur each other on towards growth. And their, the other kids in the school gave them the nickname the Holy Club. All right, that was not their name for themselves. Do not call your small group the Holy Club, all right? No one will like you. Okay. These people didn't like them either, and that's why they gave them that name, all right? So they called them the Holy Club. The Holy Rollers, there you go. That's right. When he finished school, uh, he felt like God was calling him to be a missionary to that wild and foreign land known as America. All right? So he came to America, specifically to Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, to be a missionary there. And it was a terrible, terrible failure. It was a failure. He failed completely at it. He fell in love with a girl who didn't fall in love with him, ruined him, his life, and uh, he ended up going back home as a complete failure. Yeah, Donna said, oh, all right, thanks, Donna. <laughs> Went back as a complete failure. On the ship, the ship is hit by this massive storm along the journey, and he realizes as he fears for his life, he's like, I don't have this assurance of salvation in my life. He looked at these people, these, these mothers who had gathered together their children and were, were like singing to them. They're singing hymns in the midst of this storm. And here he is, the missionary and the chaplain of this ship. And he says, I was afraid to die. They were not. What do they have that I don't have? Ended up wrecking his life in so many ways. He found himself at this outdoor Bible study on a street called Otter's Gate on May 24th, 1738. And he later wrote in his journal that around a quarter till nine on that evening, while someone stood and read Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I knew in that moment that I did trust Christ fully. For salvation and that I was his that I was his there was something about it his life went from being fragmented to holistic all under the reign of King Jesus and it unleashed in his life and throughout England 
a revival that swept across that country, that, that, that warmth, that spark that started in his heart on that night became a wildfire that swept across England. This revival breaks out and historians will look back on this and say England at that time was breaking down as a society and they were on the verge of a violent revolution like was experienced by France. They were on the verge of the same thing, but something turned in that culture. Something turned in that society. And as they look at it, they attribute a revival to being the thing that turned the whole history of that country. Here's the thing about it. As he began to preach the gospel in different places, more and more places were pushing him out and did not want him to be there anymore. And so he got banned from basically every pulpit in the area. And when they banned him from preaching in the churches, then he would go out to his, his father's, out to the, the cemetery where his father was buried, and he stood up on his father's gravestone, and he preached from there. And he said, they can't block me from this spot. I got a right to this spot. And he preached from there. And his friend George Whitfield encouraged him to go out of the churches and to begin what he called field preaching. Go out to where the workers are, where the workers are headed in to the fields for the day, where they're going to spend the whole day working. Preach to them in the morning on their way and preach to them in the evening on their way back. And that's what he did. People began to get saved left and right. They didn't just get saved. They didn't just make decisions. They also got discipled into becoming followers of Jesus. And they organized them in this discipleship process and it swept across the country. Here's the beautiful thing about it, though. One of the things that's the most remarkable about that revival is who was on the forefront, who the leaders were. The leaders were not trained clergy people. The leaders were mobilized, ordinary people. One of the things they found most remarkable is that how many people that would have been considered in poverty at that point in time, were a part of this movement. And then they realized something significant. They said, here's the thing. It's not just that it was a ministry to the poor, but it became a ministry by the poor. It was led by the people who were the most marginalized. It wasn't just a ministry reaching out to them, but it was a ministry that was moving because of those mobilized leaders. A revival that swept across England into America. And that's the heritage that our church comes out of too. It can't be fragmented. The whole thing has to be surrendered. Here's the deal. As I've been going through this, I feel like one of the blind spots for us as a church. And I feel like one of the fragmented parts for us as a church is that call of discipleship. I think we've got a pretty decent plan. Hey, if you'll put up the discipleship path. We have a clear path that we talk about of how to be discipled in this church. But you know what we don't talk about very much? It's how to make disciples outside of this church. I think this path is, is good for us. Uh, let's go to the one that's called our discipleship path. Okay, there we go. 
This is a this is a good path for us that people can walk through and can be a part of. But almost all of this has to do with people coming into the church. So my question is, how do we disciple people outside of the church? We can't be fragmented. We can't say this part is sacred and out there is not. No, if this is going to ever become what Jesus called us to become. Then discipleship has to be something that is happening out there. It's not pastors discipling you. It's you discipling people who are not in this church. That's where it's got to go. That's where it's got to go. One simple thing here to share with you. It's an acronym. And I know acronyms are cheesy. It's acronym GROW. Okay. I know acronyms are cheesy, but I'm cheesy. So live with it. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Chris. Oh, man. But this acronym lets you know, like, here's the goal. Here's what we're going to. Okay, this is so simple. But we're trying to put this into your hands and not just say you got to bring people through here. You got to bring people to us. All of us have to be mobilized to disciple other people. So here it is. It's as simple as it gets. And it is cheesy, but we're going to roll with it. All right. G stands for gather. Gather. And so the first thought is this. Study the word together and start with the story of Jesus in the gospel. Okay. do you have something that, you know, last week we talked about sharing your Jesus story with other people. So what do you do next? What do you do after you shared your Jesus story with people? What if you can't bring them here? Then do you just give up on them. No, here's what you can do to disciple somebody on your lunch break. All right. In your office, in your wherever you are. Number one, gather. Okay, this is intentional time and prayer together. All right. That's the first thing. Intentional time and prayer together all right number two roots i I jumped ahead there okay that's what i meant to i'm i'm saying it for this one all right roots is study the word together and start with the story of jesus in the gospels all right gather together get somebody together spend intentional time with them first pray intentionally together and then what do you do next study the gospels together walk through a chapter together walk through a story in the gospel together bit by bit and move through the life of jesus with them start with jesus is there any other place to start start with jesus number three the o is observe all right as you're reading through the gospels ask this question what do you see ask the person you're discipling what do you see what's coming to the surface allow them to put it in their own words so they can share with you how jesus is shaping them what does this mean And what does it mean for us? How does it speak directly to where we are? And the last is this walk. All right. What are my action steps in response? How will I obey and how will I walk this out in my life? How will I walk this out in my life? We're going to put that together as a love lab uh, resource for you and get that in your hands. But I just want you to know we're going to be emphasizing this more and more and more because it has to move beyond You having to bring people here. All right. That's not the way the church is designed to operate. The church is a sending station. That's what Jesus called us to be. And so we can't be fragmented as a church. And I want you to know when we get up and we talk and we challenge you about blind spots and we challenge you about what's fragmented in your life, the Holy Spirit's always pointing that back at us. Okay, he's always asking us the same questions. 
and he won't let us get up here and preach without it being preached to us first, okay? So that's where we're going. That's where we're going. Where are your blind spots? What is the light illuminating in your life? What is he calling out? Are you listening? And what is fragmented? What needs to be whole? What needs to be brought under the reign of Jesus? Either everything's sacred or nothing is. Either everything's under his reign or nothing is. He wants to reign it all. That's what it means to worship him as King Jesus. On his last night with his disciples, Jesus took the bread that was on the table and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. I'm going to be broken to make you whole. And then he took the cup that was on the table. And he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. Poured out for the salvation of the world, for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you taste it, remember the sacrifice that I have made for you. Today we celebrate that and we share in that as we worship King Jesus together. We're going to invite you to come forward and to participate in communion. There'll be two stations, one here and one here. And if you need a gluten-free option, then it will be on this side. We invite you to come down, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and taste and see that the Lord is good.